3: You know how I start my introductions with like a, a what's Xing my Y's sort of thing? A lot of the time, people seem to like that. It's become a little bit of a trend. You know how that's a thing that we do? Yeah, sometimes. What What if I were to open the show by loudly shouting, What's abortin' my fetuses? Would that be a good idea? Would that work?
4: I mean, I'm not perfect. Uh, no. I was going to say something smart. No. Just no.
3: No, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have started the show that way. That was a bad call.
4: No. What's not, aborting
3: my fetuses is not a winner.
4: I, I would go not a winner.
3: Well, that's a shame because we've already recorded it. I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards. It's a podcast about the worst people in all of history. Today, we're talking about someone who's relevant to the issue of legal abortion. Anyway, my guest is Teresa Lee. Hello. Lee, we, we. What's Hello.
5: up? It's me, Father Longlegs. Hi. I, yeah, it's good to be here. I had no idea what we were talking about. And boy, am I excited.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Teresa, how do you feel about me opening the show by calling out what's aborting my fetuses? Was that a good idea? Do you think I'm a third opinion is necessary?
5: It's 2020. And I don't know anything. Nothing surprises me. But I was I said, boy, am I excited? I should probably have said boy or girl, but we'll never know. Because you know, once it's aborted, you won't know. So
3: exactly. That's the beauty of of, of abortion. Anyway, um, there's no beauty
5: in abortion. (laughs) Well, I that's not believe.
3: true.
5: <laughs> that's Beauty not true. Okay, okay. There's a lot of
3: there's a lot of good things about it it being it being available that are that are lovely. People oh, being true. able to take charge of their lives in a lot of one. Anyway, yes, we don't yes. need to That's not necessary at the top of this episode. But uh, Teresa, <laughs> what is what, what 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 are you, Teresa, in podcasts? You are like, a maker. No, you create same. things. No, like what do you, no, you what do you what do you what do you what do you want what do you want the kids at home? To listen to to go to go know about you. I'll,
5: I'm gonna come in super hot because I just read an article not about my podcast but I was a guest on it and it described me as so tranquil she didn't know it was being recorded I think he meant it nicely but I was like damn that's who I am I'm just I just reek of RA energy I was a former RA um I am a uh, I guess I'm a former RA. Let's leave with that. And, oh, wait, uh, um, like a,
3: like you, <laughs> like in colleges and shit?
5: Yes, in college. OK, okay. Co- NYU was expensive. I needed to find ways to pay my housing. So and, you were basically you know
3: a what? cop is what you're saying.
5: Well, no, because I was there for the support. Like I, I did a lot of the programming and like behavioral health and like one on ones. And honestly, I just didn't like to enforce the rules. I was all about, uh, you know, supporting the emotions of the kids. But yeah, I guess technically that's what RAs do is they are kind of cops.
4: But there's actual cops in New
5: York, so I didn't have to worry about that stuff, about crime. You know, I'm like sad
4: I didn't have you as my RA in college. We had a total (laughs) narc. (laughs) I feel like I give off narc vibes, but I'm not a narc, I swear. Um, I am also a podcaster. You can
5: listen to my podcast. Which is called You Can Tell Me Anything, which is kind of an RA podcast. It's a cop it is podcast kind of...
4: where you interrogate people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just
5: really like I, people yeah. don't even know they're on it. I just kidnap them, put them in a Starting room. Starting to go, suspect you start that Teresa's an
3: undercover. <laughs> is this why you kept trying to get me to saw down those shotguns?
5: Yes. I have no idea what you're talking about, but. Uh... Uh huh. I feel like I'm a few seasons late on your Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it
3: was just a Ruby Ridge joke. We do those all the time oh, when we're not doing gotcha. Waco jokes. Teresa, <laughs> have you ever heard of Phyllis Schlafly?
5: No, I don't think so.
3: Oh boy. Um, okay. So the the name's <laughs> not ringing okay. any bells, huh?
5: Nope. Can't say I know any Phyllises, really, that are in real life. I feel like I know the Phyllis from Monsters, Inc., but... Uh, she
4: would hate my T-shirt that says, Feminism is the law now, created by mm. Jamie Loftus of the Bechdel cast. Hi, Caitlin. She would hate the shirt. <laughs> hate.
3: Yeah, it's... Um, she hates T-shirts. She would hate that shirt.
5: Not a fan of cotton, or uh, is it polyester,
4: or... Uh, Stretch. Fe- feminism,
5: so, feminism. <laughs> oh, oh so, gotcha.
3: Okay. F- <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly was probably the most famous anti-feminist in all of history. Mm. Um, she's a, 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 a one of the. I don't know. So, like, we have we have a couple of different kinds of bastards on the show, right? We've got like the guys. We've got like the dictators, which is what our show kind of started to talk about—Hitler mm-hmm. and Stalin and these these people who are like very famous, like mass murderers in history. Um, and you know, those folks it's really easy to tell, like you can usually like throw an exact death toll at them, right? Like we're talking about Hitler, mm-hmm. we can be like and Hitler was responsible for roughly this many millions of people dying, and Stalin, you know, got this many millions of people killed, and yada yada yada, Saddam killed this many people. Very easy. The first one we're talking about today is someone who never ordered a single execution or invasion. Um, but it is possible that in the long run of time, Phyllis Schlafly will wind up with a body count that actually eclipses a lot of our other guests. Uh, and with things going the way they are, she might be the person who gets a lot of the people listening to this podcast killed. Uh, that's, a good, there's, oh, that, no. that, that's all still up in the air. Um, now, if you've seen or read The Handmaid's Tale, you're familiar with... Have, have you you've watched The Handmaid's Tale?
5: Uh, it's a little too graphic for me, but I'm, I very much know the content and the stories and the themes.
3: <laughs> There's that character, Serena Joy, who's like the main female villain of the series. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the lady who's married to the commander... Um in her backstory in the the both the show and the book is that she was like a major political conservative political icon and author before the Dominionist Christians took over the United States. Uh, and Margaret Atwood who wrote The Handmaid's Tale actually had a specific real person in mind when she wrote Sh- Serena Joy uh and it was Phyllis Schlafly. So Schlafly no like that character is based on Phyllis wow. Schlafly. Yeah. I did not
4: know that. Yeah. Yeah. Serena Joy is basically like or before before everything goes down is like speaking at colleges being like the woman's place is in the house. And like, yeah. there is like, what's wrong with that? No, I'm just kidding. And it's just Scary. all of our places are in the
5: house now that we're in that's, quarantine. That's yeah. True. Now everyone's
3: that's place true. is in the house. Yeah.
5: Um, damn. So she sounds real evil. So she, cause for some reason when you started this, I, the way you phrased it, I was like, wait, so is she for abortion or against? Cause I would say anti-feminist should be, uh, would be against abortion. But then she... Ha- okay, so I guess I'll hear your story, but I'm trying to piece this together. I know about Planned Parenthood, and she's not around. That's not her. No.
3: No, 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 no. She's the opposite of all that. So so Phyllis, the big thing she gets credited with usually is that she stopped the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which uh. she did. Uh, what she's less often credited for is creating... American conservatism the Republican Party as it exists today as an as a meaningful political force like she's the uh-huh. person who kind of invented the Republican Party's strategy that led to them reaching the exact demographic that put Donald Trump into office. without But without, she goes back quite a while. So without Phyllis, we probably don't have President Ronald Reagan. We may not have either President Bush, the Iraq War, the push to ban abortion, the Trump campaign, or any of a lot of other terrible things that are currently pushing our country to the brink of a nightmare. Phyllis Schlafly is the person who took like straight up fascist Christian right-wing politics mm. and took them into the mainstream. Like the Republican gotcha. Party was not always that party. She made it that party. That's that's her accomplishment. Is she turned the Republican Party into the party of fucking QAnon, right? Like that's that's yes. what what yeah. She's the person There's
5: also like uh the CNP is she related to that at all or I'm not sure if that touches the on the CNP the like uh, Council on National Policy—it's sort of in that shadow network with you know Koch brothers money and DeVos money and oh all yeah, that. I mean
3: she was kind of in I, I I'm she she was in that vague universe of people who were part of think tanks and got paid a lot of money by sketchy mm. Republican millionaires and stuff like but her big affiliation was with the Moral Majority with the Falwells like she mm. had a lot of she was a big yes, player in okay, all of. that I, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah the American Enterprise Institute she
4: was involved with with Jerry. Yeah. It's never good.
3: Yeah. Jerry Jerry kind of stole her ideas to make the religious gotcha. right into a thing. That's not. Um, she was his muse. In a way, kinda. Yeah, we'll get into the whole story right about now. So let's do it. Uh so Phyllis was born Phyllis McAlpine Stewart uh on August 15th, 1924 in St. Louis, Missouri. Her mother, Dottie, came from a moderately prominent family. Her dad had been a successful, like, and, and Phyllis's granddad had been a successful attorney. And unusually for the area, Dottie had both a bachelor's degree and a two-year certification in library science. So she was a, a, an educated woman in an era when that was, like, not the most common thing in the world, although it was starting to be more common. This is, like, right around when women are getting the vote. Uh, in 1921, mm-hmm. Daddy met and married Bruce Stewart, a heavy equipment salesman for Westinghouse. Which are the guys who made typewriters and along with a bunch of other stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, now Bruce was seventeen years older than Daddy, which I think we would all consider problematic today, right? Not always, like there's <laughs> definitely age gaps like that that are that 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 have existed and have been okay. But as a rule, something like oh, that's kind of weird. Uh, but at the time, <laughs> everything was terrible, and it was totally normal that your husband Unlike would now, have thirty-five years great. on you. Yeah, you know, you it, as, a, as a man in his 40s, you know you've got about 15 years left before your heart gives out, so you really want to marry a 20-year-old so she mm-hmm. can take care of you once you start stroking. Um, Wait, was
5: her name Daddy? Did I hear Dottie. that right?
3: Dottie, It's okay. D-A-D-I oh, was like what okay. everybody was like, called her. So I yeah, I never think thought to name
5: a girl Daddy, but now I want to.
3: I, I'm not going to call her, in my, I, I don't think it was Daddy, <laughs> and it makes me uncomfortable to call her that the entire podcast, so we're going to go with Dottie.
4: He
5: Don,
3: almost,
4: okay. You almost made a, a podcast joke. <laughs> you almost said I was almost going to call her daddy. Get it? Anybody? Oh,
5: I i don't really know what that is. I've seen that meme around, but I, I'm not well versed in, in that. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's over your head, Robert. It's fine. It's fine.
3: Okay. Pop culture. That's good.
5: So Dottie is married to Bruce.
3: So Dottie gets married to Bruce, uh, and Phyllis is born three years into their marriage, which actually is kind of interesting to me, that, like, they wait Mm. that long, because, like, normally this time especially like something like that you you get married you just start you just start firing off kids but but dottie um <laughs> waits a little bit which is interesting now both dottie and bruce are very traditional religious conservative republicans um but partisan politics at that point wasn't really what it is today like there were a lot of political movements that had really divided the country but they weren't like they didn't fall along like republican democrat lines in kind of the way mm. that they did today um so Phyllis did not hear a lot of political discussion as a little girl. Like she doesn't, recall, she never, as an adult, never recalled it being a major part of her childhood. Uh, she was a precocious and happy child, at least according to the biographical interviews uh, conducted by a Chicago journalist who studied her upbringing. It's hard for me to verify this for certain because the most detailed picture I found of her early life comes from a very biased biographer, Donald Critchlow. His book Phyllis Schlafly and Grassroots Conservatism is not like it's not like just a puff piece. It's a pretty deeply reported Mm. book but he's super sympathetic to her Um, and as Mm. a result we get lines like this one no tensions between the parents were evident to their children or revealed in correspondence or diaries Dottie was an attractive woman devoted to her family like it's all very whitewashed and Mm. maybe her childhood was like that um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> life does seem like it was broadly good for the Stewart family up until 1930. So the 20s did pretty well for them as they did for the rest of the city at St. Louis, which was like, had 800,000 people in it at that point. Like St. Louis used to be a big city. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, uh, yeah. So in 1924, the year Phyllis's birth, St. Louis went Republican, voting for Coolidge in that election and Hoover the next. Uh, this did not prove to have been a great idea. Uh, in 1929, the Great Depression hit, and the city sunk into an apocalyptic collapse that it has still not recovered from. St. Louis's population today is just a bit over 300,000, which is less than a th- mm-hmm. uh, about a third of the population it had when Phyllis was born. So the city that she comes from kind of collapses when she's about, you know, six years old. Um, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and her father suffers along with the rest of his city. He loses his job as a sales engineer to Westinghouse, and this left him broke and pensionless at the age of 51 with a wife and two children. Uh, now, thankfully, it wasn't quite as dire as it sounds because the uh, the family actually had some money. Uh, they had a wealthy uncle, and Dottie and her kids were able to move to Los Angeles where they lived with him for a while while Bruce stayed back in St. Louis to try to get a job. Uh, By 1932, though, he had more or less given up. The economic situation was pretty hopeless. Now, at this point, Phyllis was in the fourth grade. And her family's dire financial straits don't seem to have really gotten through to her. Instead, she wrote in her diary about the excitement of taking a three-day train ride from St. Louis to Los Angeles in an unair-conditioned car. Again, Phyllis's biographer assures us that despite the dire circumstances, her family kept her safe and insulated. And again, I'm not really sure how much I believe this. Like the way no, wait, that
5: three-day train ride is that? Yeah, really
3: yeah, yeah. That's what she had to do back in the day. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure I believe that her biographer, when he says that like this period, she was kind of insulated from the stress, uh, just because mm-hmm. I kind of have some some personal um, background stuff that's in line with this. Like I'm, for one thing, I was born yeah. in St. Louis too. But when I was a little kid, I saw my dad... My dad lost his job, and my mom had to move away to the family farm, which was like this tiny Mm -hmm. little house owned by my grandpa. And my dad had to live thousands of miles away in New York, like living on a friend's couch trying to make money. Um, And my parents did their best to not make this like traumatic and Mm anxiety-inducing for me. And I didn't really talk about it to them, because I didn't want them to know how bad it was. Uh, But like, it really fucked me up as a kid. And I have to imagine... I have to imagine young Phyllis picked up on some of this being separated from your dad, having to like move across the country. um, I I, I just can't imagine that didn't leave some sort of a mark, but. um, Yeah, that
5: definitely is like whether or not you, I mean, it seems like she maybe didn't process it. So she may not be aware, but that's the kind of thing as a develop. It's you're not an adult as a child. Literally that's the definition of child and you're developing. So any changes like that, that take away, pull the rug out or, challenge your sense of safety and security, even if there's a reason and logic behind it, it is going to affect your patterns as an adult. And so I yeah, I'm with you on that.
3: Yeah. And like the specific way in which it challenges her security is 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 kind of she becomes this big fighter, big warrior for like traditional mm-hmm family order and all this stuff. And like her ba- her childhood is very much not a traditional childhood at the uh-huh. time. And kind of the role that her parents take isn't very traditional because her dad is out of work for a huge chunk of time, out of a picture for it. Yeah. So there is kind of this feeling you get throughout her life that maybe that maybe this was a lot more traumatic to her than she ever uh-huh. even realized herself. And it had an impact on why she why she became uh. this sort of warrior for for this, like trying to kind of reset her childhood in some way. That oh, it was yeah, like, it's yeah. almost like
5: she's uh, pinning all of her personal trauma onto this bigger issue as to not look within herself and deal with it. And yeah, maybe. And then saying like, oh, if everything just stayed the same, I would have stayed the same and life would have been good. But it's like, or maybe life is up and down. <laughs>
3: My family wasn't able to be traditional in the way that I think it ought to be, so I should force everybody else... To, like, have this childhood I didn't get to. I don't know. Whatever. In 1932, Dottie and the family moved back to St. Louis where they rented a house. And Dottie took a job selling yard goods at a department store. So in 32, she becomes the chief breadwinner of the family because uh, Bruce just can't get a job. And he's, like, old Mm. and not in the best health. And he can't find work. Uh, Again, Phyllis Schlafly's biographer glosses over some things here. But it does look like, like the family was helped out by their relatives so that they could all move back in together. Um, So they're poor. Family has some money, though. Um, So they have a safety net, right, Uh, in this Mm -hmm. kind of period where most people don't. You know, this is the Great Depression. Um, Mm -hmm. So Dottie became the family's main breadwinner. Uh, She labored nine hours a day. She had a two-hour commute. She tended to work six days a week. Uh, And during this time, like, Phyllis is in school and seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, She was an active and well-behaved child. She edited the elementary school newspaper. Uh, If she took any particular pride in seeing her mother as the family breadwinner, we have no evidence of this. Uh, Dottie Mm -hmm. was clearly a very intelligent and ambitious person, and she moved quickly on to teaching English at a public school. And in 1937, she became a librarian at the St. Louis Art Museum, where she worked until she retired. So by the time Phyllis was 14 years old, she'd lived in six different homes. Her family had rented every single time, and her parents had never seemed to come particularly close to owning property. Dottie, who by this point wore the pants economically in the family, decided that they should spend what resources they had on getting their kids the best education possible. She was able to get them free tuition at a nice Catholic school by volunteering to catalog and maintain the school's library. So, Phyllis's very Catholic family gets to go to this Catholic school. Her mom is uh, not just making the money but like you know volunteering on her day off mm-hmm. in order to get them free tuition. Um so Phyllis is grows up with Dottie, this mother is like a very liberated uh, fig mm-hmm. like female figure in her life. Um, now, throughout all this period, Phyllis's father was unemployed. Uh, he didn't work regularly again until World War II when he got a job as an electrical engineer for the War Production Board. Now, after this point, things got a lot better economically. He wound up building a, a, and patenting a new type of engine at some point after this. Wow. Throughout the Great Depression, though, he refused to take any unemployment money from the government out of fear that his grandchildren would have to pay for what he called Roosevelt's War on the Free Enterprise System, this planned economy huh. and the welfare state he was building.
5: I'm here. I'm here buzzwords already yeah It's <laughs> yeah. kind of being planted so early on and and associated with these other historical events you're talking about like war and the Great Depression like sounds like there's other factors but then as you tie it all together it's like you know future generations will be like well things are bad because of buzzword buzzword when it's like well things were bad because of historical event
3: (laughs) yeah i mean things were bad because yeah the economy had collapsed um and it's kind of worth noting that like as he's jobless for most of the depression um bruce is refusing to take government aid and that makes his wife have to work you know nine hour days really 11 hour days when you have the commute (laughs) supporting the family um yeah which is like Hmm. that yeah so
5: but so he'll take family aid. It's, he's, he took his rich family's aid and his he wife's hourly aid. He did take his rich family aid, aid. But not government aid.
3: <laughs> it's interesting because Phyllis will become this, like, warrior huh. against the welfare state and all that stuff. Um, and also a major huh. advocate for, like, the traditional family. Like, those are her two big things. But as a kid her family is unable to be like her mom is not home because they refu- her dad refuses to take government aid mm-hmm. um so it's like the the as a child the welfare state attempted to make it possible for her to have <laughs> a traditional family life and her dad wouldn't let that be the case um now that said it seems like dotty enjoyed what she was doing
4: it said it really adds to the effect that his name is bruce like, the name, her yeah, parents' he's, he's names Yeah, he's definitely are a Bruce. Excellent.
3: Yeah, and Dottie, see, I think Dottie would have probably wanted to be a career woman in any case. Like, she's clearly a very ambitious person. But, like, it's just interesting to me that the, the thing that, that Phyllis becomes a crusader against is the thing that would have allowed her to, like, have her mom at home when she was a kid. It's very, yeah. very fun.
5: Well, it's also this weird framing because the, the idea of being, a fa- like, a traditional family, often people talk about, like, the mother's place is to be a home and, or the woman's place is to be home and be a mother. But if you frame it a different way, it sounds like Dottie did the extreme version of being a mother like she was like, all right, my child needs support and care. So I'm going to work for her tuition. So like in a lot of different framings like that is doing the motherly job even more motherly. But um, I feel like that goes against this idea that the mother's at home, even though it's still driven by this motherhood, not a drive to work. It's driven by a drive to provide.
3: Yeah. Yeah. it It is. Um, I mean, she, she's clearly is a great provider and like is a, a I, I think most people would agree a really like like being a very responsible mother here, like putting in a lot of work mm-hmm. and time and, and effort in order to take care of and give her kids the best possible chance. Uh, and Phyllis inherited her mother's obsessive work ethic. She was an extremely competitive student uh, and was actually like broken hearted in her sophomore year when she failed to win the coveted highest average award in her school hmm. because she'd had to stay home for a chunk of the year with the measles. Uh, And trawling through Phyllis's biography in this period, she seems like the platonic ideal of an ambitious 1940s girl. Uh, She graduated valedictorian. All of her friends were these wealthy, gifted children of aristocratic Catholic St. Louis families. Um, Her grades earned her a four-year scholarship at Maryville College, which was a local Catholic school. And Phyllis went there for a year, but she was disappointed, finding it too easy. So she enrolled instead (laughs) at Washington University, where she would have to pay her own tuition. Uh, I should note here that at one point in the past, it was possible for students to pay their own tuition to college without, you know, being rich. Like that was the thing (laughs) that you used to be able to do. Now, World War II was in the middle of like happening at this point when, when Phyllis starts doing college. And, <laughs>
5: in the middle of happening.
3: <laughs> yeah. So she needs a full time job in order to pay for college. And thankfully, there's this horrible war going on. So it's actually really easy to find work. <laughs> uh, and she gets a full time job at the St. Louis Ordnance Plant testing ammunition by shooting machine guns all day. Um, wow. Which is a pretty sick job. Uh, and, and also
5: non traditional yeah. in the like, yes. in the old timey gender roles sense. Like, yeah, totally only bringing that up because it sounds like she she, she's going to get worse. And I'm like, hmm, interesting.
3: Yeah, it's a pretty cool gig. Um, She gets twelve hundred and fifty dollars a year to shoot these machine guns, (laughs) which is about the equivalent of about twenty thousand a year now. But that was a living wage back then. Like that was enough for her Uh to live and pay for college Um, because it was just a different time. Uh, So Phyllis, like, was Hmm. working constantly between school and her job. Uh, She didn't really have any free time, but she seemed happy and she was able to live independently working for the government. Uh, Phyllis earned her bachelor's degree and she went to Harvard and got a graduate degree. And and to talk like... I want to, at this point, kind of zip ahead 60 years Mm -hmm. to elderly 87-year-old Phyllis when she was giving (laughs) a speech in 2013, uh, because she brought up this part of her life, her time at Harvard, during a speech in front of a bunch of white right-wing activists. Uh, and I want to tell I I want to read this to you so you can see kind of how she framed her time in school quote let me tell you I worked my way through college and got my college degree at a great university Washington University of St. Louis in 1944 no discrimination of any kind she's highlighting that she like there was was no discrimination of women before feminism I then went to Harvard Graduate School and competed (laughs) with all of the guys no discrimination whatsoever got my Harvard degree in 1945 and my mother got her bachelor's degree at a great co-ed university in 1920 so all these opportunities were out there before you were all born. And the feminists had absolutely nothing to do with it. So that's the way she frames this is like. She
5: frames no discrimination as if discrimination is like as long as you are, as long as you make it, there's no discrimination yeah. that exists at all. Like it's like, well, if, if you didn't get in or you didn't get something, it could be discrimination. It might not be. But that doesn't imply that there's none at all. Like how many people were like, how many women were, you know, in the class versus men? Or was it just that you? Yep. Sounded like you did really well and then you're like, well, it doesn't exist.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's that whole statement is is a pack of lies. And I'm gonna quote now from a write-up by journalist Adele Stan to kind of break down why. Uh, In truth, Uh Schlafly would have been barred from entry to Harvard's undergraduate programs in 1945, as well as from its law school. And while she studied with the men, Mm. Harvard, under pressure from feminists, had just begun admitting women to some of its graduate programs. Her degree was conferred not by Harvard, but by the women's college with which it was affiliated, Radcliffe. Schlafly Mm. also failed to mention that at the time her mother earned her degree, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which, thanks for the efforts of first-wave feminists, granted women the right to vote, had not yet been ratified. So like, I, I, she she leaves out a lot here like the fact that she wouldn't have gotten to go to Harvard at all without pressure from feminists and the fact that Harvard was so bigoted it would not give her a degree she had to she did the studying at Harvard but she had to be given a degree mm-hmm. by an affiliated college because they didn't want Harvard didn't want to be seen as giving degrees to women
5: this is a little like Stockholm syndrome y like the way she is because it's almost like the, the lady doth protest too much like I don't yeah. go back and talk about all the times I haven't been discriminated against but if you're going to bring that up in your speech and it's like, hmm, perhaps you're defending something you know in your heart to be true that you don't want to look at.
3: Yeah, and I, yeah, exactly. So, Robert, let's get back to it. Yes? Before you get back to it,
4: it's time for a thing.
3: Sophie, that's not how we do things here. We have to start by saying something horrible and then we use that to lead into (laughs) a podcast ad. Like, Teresa, how Mm. often do you think about the armenian genocide
4: where are you going with this one buddy is this rhetorical
3: i that was not a good way to lead into sophie how do we i've forgotten how to do this job (laughs) what are Um, you trying to sell (laughs) nothing Uh, the uh, products uh, here have an ad happy
0: pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop
1: protect your dream home with american family insurance and you can weather any storm you'll also save up to 25 by bundling home auto and life american family insurance Get a quote. Find an agent at
6: AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
7: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded...
4: Start having sex and then he's very vulnerable
6: so you can kill him easily. To die for is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We're back. Uh and boy howdy, I botched that last transition. Yeah, I was expecting you to go
4: full Waco and then you just like didn't. It was weird.
3: I, I, you know, I, I'm fighting a cold. Maybe I don't know. I just, I don't have the Waco in me today.
4: You're doing great,
5: Robert.
3: The spirit of Koresh great, is not, I agree. not in, okay. Thank you. <laughs> so here we go. Let's get back to it. Um, so <laughs> Phyllis, uh, you know, goes to Harvard, gets her degree from an affiliated school because Harvard doesn't want to give degrees to icky girls. Uh, Phyllis does not seem to have been particularly political at this point in her career. When she did write about politics, um, it, she didn't really exhibit a hard right bias. Like we have some of her essays from this period. And she was actually really mm. into the idea. This is, again, right around the end of World War II to the creation of the United. She was really into the idea of the creation of the United Nations and like establishing a national order, which could act as a bulwark against the aggression of dangerous countries, which is like. Mm. So, it, you know, 1945, she's like, oh, yeah, of course there should be a United Nations that helps, like, keep the peace internationally. Um, now, obviously, as Phyllis Schlafly, you know, when she became <laughs> a, a major activist, she would reject any hint that there should be an international order or, like, cooperation for peace. Mm-hmm. But in 1945, she wasn't, like, a nativist, hard-right cynic yet. The shift in her seems to have started after the end of World War II. Without great global threats to confront the U.S., uh, the government began to disassemble the various agencies it had created to like, build the, the army that was necessary to fight World War II. So in an instant, the job market went from this wide-open place flush with cash to a contracting market where returning veterans got preferential treatment and young women like Phyllis were unable to find work. Uh, and I'm going to hmm. quote now from a segment of her biography that highlights what I think is probably the clearest first evidence we have of her embrace of right-wing ideology. In November nineteen forty five, Phyllis Stewart won a reader's essay contest sponsored by the Washington Daily News, declaring the cards are stacked against the enterprising and ambitious person and in favor of the mediocre adults or the unqualified veteran. Um so she's basically talking huh. about like the fact that the government is giving preference to um to people who aren't like her, uh, for employment. <laughs> and like that's the thing. She that sounds she like hates. a lot of people on Twitter yeah.
5: right now in twenty twenty. Yeah. But also just the idea of like calling it unqualified vet, like it's like they fought in I I don't know. There's so many layers to this that I'm, it's interesting. I'm seeing yeah. her brain kind of like, oh, oh going to overdrive. And I feel like at one point it just crashes. Like it's like yeah. too many things and thoughts. And she's like, I don't know what to believe. I guess we'll just reset it.
3: Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't know about that. Um, In terms of like what's going on in her head right now. I think there's actually a pretty straight point. Like she seems to start, at like, like like her issue here is that like the government is giving actual preference to veterans and stuff. Like there were a bunch of different kind of like job benefits that they got. Um, but she's and, trying to
5: get work right now, right? So she's still kind of pro working woman at this she, point?
3: Yeah, she's it's more that she's anti um she's anti like these the, the people who are coming in and like taking the jobs that she wants to get like even though mm. they're kind of like veterans and the people you'd think are supposed to be heroes like it, she she develops this kind of issue because they're um they're 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 taking the work that she wants and she sees it as like well the if the government wasn't like sticking its business sticking its nose in business and like mm. trying giving these people a leg up um then I wouldn't be having this problem. Um, Because I'm clearly very qualified. Like, yeah, I think that's kind of what's going on here. And she so she starts to get angry, like really angry kind of at the government's, you know, um, at its meddling in the economy. Um, And she winds up finding a group of conservatives who seem to be angry about some of the same things. And she gets a job Mm -hmm. with this think tank they've organized called the American Enterprise Association, which later becomes the American Enterprise Institute. This is still around today. So you may not have heard about the AEI uh, or the American Enterprise Institute. Today, they're just one of a bunch of conservative think tanks in D.C. arguing that schools should be open. And like a bunch of their Mm -hmm. more recent arguments have been like, we need to reopen schools and also Taiwan needs U.S. Fighter jets and like a bunch of like standard kind of conservative stuff, but the AEI wait which that's was, a
5: Taiwan that um, Taiwan is a conservative
3: yeah yeah because they were like they they started they're out as like exactly but they
5: didn't used to be I mean. Well, I don't want to get too into it, but the US like literally armed the communists in China and were pro-splitting China in half, which helped oh, yeah. Taiwan lose.
3: Absolutely. Which, and now
5: they're all anti-China, but it's like, you guys made this happen.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's US foreign policy in a nutshell, as we aim, we arm everybody involved and then it comes back to bite us in the ass and we're like, how could this have happened? That's that's like <laughs> 70 years of US foreign policy summed up right there. Um so the AEI was was like, okay, so the, the AEI today is kind of like a pretty normal right-wing think tank. Um, in 1943, <laughs> though, they were kind of the very first, like, the very first sign of what would become the organized conservative movement in the United States. Um mm yeah prior to World War II there really wasn't a conservative like movement in the United States there were a bunch of different right wing groups and had been like a lot of different right wing like political organizations Um, but you had sort of these this smattering like a mix of anti New Deal groups so like right wing groups that thought the New Deal was creeping communism Um, you had these like nativist organizations um, you know like supporters of Father Coughlin that right wing radio preacher Mm -hmm. uh, or like supporters of Charles Lindbergh people who hadn't wanted to get involved in World War II, so you kind of had like this this disorganized chunk of different, um, different, and very separate kind of right wing uh, political organizations. You had anti communists, corporatists, you know, uh, anti semites, anti catholics, and all of these people. Um, like they they had they'd never really come together in an organized conservative movement before, and that's kind of why the Democrats like are consistently winning presidential elections and dominating politically during this time because there's really no organized right wing movement, and there is an organized left wing movement, um, or at least kind mm-hmm. of liberal movement. So what became the organized conservative movement, what we know today as like the right wing, got its start mm-hmm. by opposing FDR's run for a third term. This was the kind of the first thing that united anti-New Deal Republicans with like conservative Democrats in the South who were on the edge of flipping parties because of racism. Um, Mm -hmm. It brought in a lot of anti-interventionalists, like people who had been with groups like America First and the Mother's Mm Anti-War Movement. Um, So yeah, this was... um, like all these groups start to come together, and there there's some pretty nasty people in them. Like the mothers' anti-war movement sounds like something that you'd see. It's like it sounds like it would be a left-wing group today, but the anti- <sighs> the war they were against in the 1930s, like they didn't want to go to war with the Nazis, which meant that there was a lot of anti-Semitic propaganda. <laughs> kind of. So
5: they were pro Nazis almost.
3: Yeah, broadly pro Nazi, and that like that's true of like the whole genesis of the huh. conservative movement. All of these people. Um, uh, they won't all say it. And after World War Two, everybody gets very careful about their Jewish conspiracies. Mm.
5: That's like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. But instead of being against drunk drivers, they're just like, no more cars. Like, we don't like cars. And you're like, what? That's not the point.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the the these different groups are all kind of the different conservative groups that kind of like come together to form like the nascent right wing in the post-war period, they are all kind of sprinkled with anti-Semitism. And and the way that they have to kind of change it Like, prior to the war, you can say Jewish people are trying to, like, Jewish influence and Jewish money is trying to keep us, uh, is trying to pull us into war. Um, And after the war, you have this, like, it it kind of changes to people saying that, like, well, there's all these secret Marxists in the United States, and they're trying to, like, Mm. make a communist takeover. And they're still talking about Jewish people, but they've gotten a lot more careful because of the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. And Phyllis's biographer insists that she, at this point in time, when she gets involved in the American Enterprise Institute, like knows nothing about like sort of the racist, anti-Semitic chunk of the of the right wing, and that's a lie. But we'll we'll talk about that a little later. Just
5: like she knows nothing about discrimination, maybe she's just bad at observing things around her.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, in the wake of. <laughs> In the wake of World War II, she she, she get, she's working with this American Enterprise uh, Association, and in the wake of World War II, they focus really on economics in part because. Um, like there were a couple like the battle again for international against internationalism had been lost like the right wing prior to the war had really wanted the U.S. to like stay on its own and not get involved in global politics. The fucking that shit that cat's out of the bag by the end of World War Two. Mm. Um, and it had also been super anti-Semitic, but you couldn't be that anymore, at least for a while. So it focused instead on like economic conservatism and like corporatism. Mm. Um, and that's kind of the thing that it starts to to build from. Um and, uh, yeah, the American Enterprise Institute's, um, like, statement of purpose, the thing that it is sort of, like, rallied around, like, the single statement that it's rallied around at the time when Phyllis gets involved is was, quote, The tide of radicalism may be receding momentarily, but this certainly does not mean that America has returned to sound fiscal policies, put an end to deficit financing, to economic experimentation, and stopped making utopian plans for the future. <laughs> um, which I find is interesting. They're like, yeah, huh. it, 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 it the, at the end of world, like the. Uh, FDR is out of the picture and people aren't, you know, pushing for as many socialist policies anymore. But like, that doesn't mean that they won't try to look into a utopian future, you know, at some point in the like, that's our goal. That's what we're stopping. Yeah. She's
5: like, um, don't worry. If if, if I was in charge, I would not be trying to make things better. I would definitely try to make things worse as they were before people tried to make things better. So just trust me on that.
3: Yeah. Well, that's kind of what that's kind of the core of this uh, conservative movement that 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 starts to come about. Is like it is impossible for things to be better. If you are trying to make <laughs> things better, you are a communist. The best that we can do, like literally, anti-communism is kind of the the entire center yeah. of this new right wing that forms because it's the that you can be anti-communist in this period. Um, you couldn't, mm. you know, and and that's. Like, th- their, their, their existence is entirely in opposition to something, right? Like, there's nothing...
5: Yeah, it's always anti.
3: Yeah, it's just an attempt to destroy things.
5: Like, I'm a, I'm you know, I'm very liberal and left and radical in that way. But, like, I've always just grown up being like, ugh, fuck conservatism. But hearing this, I'm like, that's not even really... Act- there are some people who are, like, truly American conservatives who kind of believe more in, like... Well, it's, it's all meddled up now, but there there. let's say there are a few people who are more like the idea of like less government intervention, more like old traditional values without the racism, without that, like plus human rights, you know, like, yeah, let's do progress for humans, but like less the government economic meddling. That to me, I feel like gets so lost now because it's been uh, co-opted and I'm like, as a liberal I have been brainwashed to hate all conservatives where I'm like, you know what? There are versions of conservatism that would make sense if you added human rights and reason to it.
3: Well, it's like there's versions of like, I don't know, there's there's aspects of like how people frame their conservatism. Like when people say, I just think the government should leave people alone. That's (laughs) there's that's not a bad thing to want. The problem is that. Generally, what they're saying is that I feel like I'm kind of in at at a top position or a good enough position in this society that if the government stays out, um, nothing will happen to me. And I don't really care about the people who actually need help right now. But this is when that this is when. So that's always been an aspect of American politics, right? There's always been people who have been like, fuck, you got mine. Um, But Mm -hmm. what kind of never existed was a a movement that could stitch kind of that attitude together with um, social conservatism with this idea that like things should go back to the way they were and we should have these more Mm -hmm. traditional values like this is what's that's what starts happening right now. Um, Hmm. so yeah, the American Enterprise Association, Phyllis works for them for about a year. Um, and by the time she finishes her affiliation with them, she's like a hardcore right-wing, uh, fundamentalist. Um, when she'd started working for them, she'd actually been a member of the United Nations Association and supported the new organization. Um, all of that ends for her during her time with the AEA. By the end of it, she is a dedicated right-wing partisan. Um, as her biographer notes, "quote her religious faith now combined with a well-formed conservative ideology created a formidable political outlook." Equally important, hmm. she learned from her work experience at AEA how to articulate complex issues and arguments into a simplified form easily understood by an average reader. Much of her early political writings huh. and speeches were derivative, based on an extensive reading of conservative books and periodicals, government reports, and liberal newspapers. Her originality lay in the way she framed issues. Um, Sounds a lot like
5: someone uh, I can think of in the White House. Yeah. (laughs) He speaks. Yeah. Just simplifying it, it, but getting to the emotion of the thing.
3: Yeah, that's that's going to prove to be her her strong suit Um, is like yeah. kind of cutting everything away. But yeah, any anyway, we'll, we're, we're building to it. So she moves back okay. home after her time with the AEA um, to St. Louis, and she reaches out to a congressional candidate named Claude Bakewell, uh, who was running in the 11th district. So at age 22, she she reaches out to this guy and offers to be his campaign manager. Um, and she's so impressive, like the, the the way that she's able to kind of like call up facts and statistics of, mm. of local politics, um, uh, just like shocks this guy into hiring her immediately, even though, again, really uncommon for women to be campaign med- managers and congressional campaigns in this period. Uh, as Bakewell later recalled, I had to keep looking at her to remind myself I was not talking to a fat old cigar chomping ward healer. So like she she's she's this young twenty two year old uh, girl who talks to him like an old Politico. Um, and she she had never huh. done any nitty gritty politics. She all of this all of her knowledge came from just reading the newspaper very closely. But she clearly pays attention like uh, pays attention well enough that she's able to kind of mimic the way these old Republican like political you know uh, shit fighters mm-hmm. talk. And she's able to kind of convince this guy that she has what it takes to be one of them. And it seems like she does. Um. She does well at the job, and Bakewell gets elected to Congress in 1946. Now he gets kicked out of Congress in 1948 um, when when he loses his next election. But Phyllis, you know, w- w- runs a campaign and gets a guy into office, and so by 1949 she had a real career going as a political operator. Uh, she was unmarried, you know, and 24 years old at that point. Um, hmm. And at at about 24. Um, yeah, she meets this guy named Fred Schlafly. So she's like this unmarried, politic, like independent, um, making money on her own, running a major political campaign on her own. Uh, and she meets Fred Schlafly in 1949. And Schlafly is a conservative activist and a devout Catholic, um, which is kind of Phyllis's two big qualifications that whoever she marries needs to have money and needs to be connected. Um, He came from wealth. Uh, They moved right into a mansion as soon as they got married. Um, And he had a high-powered job representing a bunch of major businesses, including several banks. And he heard about Phyllis through the Republican grapevine in St. Louis because she was really the only woman doing what she was doing at that period of time. And he was like, that sounds hot to me. Um, I I want a woman who sounds like a cigar-chomping old politico. So he reaches out to flirt with her. Uh, Donald Critchlow, her biographer, writes about what happened next, quote, what followed was a rather unusual courtship in which they usually saw each other once a week on the weekends while the rest of the time they exchanged poetry and letters. These letters were intellectual exchanges about political and theological questions, written as much to display the author's intelligence as to convey knowledge. Fred and Phyllis Schlafly married on October 20th, 1949, in a ceremony at the St. Louis Cathedral, Reported on the society pages of local newspapers. On their honeymoon in Mexico, they took an extra suitcase full of books. So what? she finds they took a books guy. on their honeymoon? yeah. Why not? I would do that. Yeah, they're big nerds. They're Was big... it to
5: fuck on or just to?
3: I think it. They probably fucked on the books. They were probably fucking <laughs> on like a bunch of like. Different, yeah, I don't know, uh, fucking uh, right wing economics, textbooks and shit, because um, that, that is kind of what gets them both horny is right wing politics. Uh, so they find each other's perfect match and they stay married the rest of their lives. So that's great for them. Um, they 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 had a, a, a loving relationship while they fucked the world. Um,
5: oh, no. Well, I so will say from, we, I do think we should bring back poetry and courtship. I might be alone on this, but look. Oh, no, look at where it got a, us don't here. Send a dick pic, send a send a, so, send a poem.
3: Uh send a poem or in lieu of a dick pic, uh a suitcase full of books. Um a that suitcase. could be the new su- and you can you can have a note a with it that says dick. <laughs> My dick is like this suitcase full of books. <laughs> uh filled with knowledge. I don't know. So, from this point forward, Phyllis Stewart began to live under the name she'd have for the rest of her life, Phyllis Schlafly. Mm. Um, Now, Phyllis shot through the turgid waters of mainstream Republican politics like a speedboat after this point. Her obsession was (laughs) anti-communism. And when I say anti-communism, I don't mean, like, she just hated actual communists. Uh, I mean, like, she was deranged. She was convinced that Harry Truman was a dyed-in-the-wool communist, like— that's the that's the level of right wing she is. Like the guy, she thinks the guy who dropped atom bombs on Japan to scare oh the gosh. Soviet Union was secretly a communist infiltrator. Um, so it's always she, the people
5: with a lot of money living in the mansion that are anti-communist. Like it's yeah. almost like they're just scared you'll take their money.
3: <laughs> yeah, and she she becomes I don't know like it it she she kind of goes from somebody who. Uh, It seemed like she was a pretty reasonable person at like age 20, 21 to Harry Truman as a secret commie in the space of like two or three (laughs) years, which is I guess it's just because she kind of finds herself in this far right political Mm -hmm. world where all of these people are like passing around these these pamphlets on politics Mm -hmm. and stuff and it just takes her over. Um I, I mean marriage I
5: will drive you crazy, I guess. I don't know, no I don't
3: kidding. know. I think it happened before the marriage. <laughs> I think the marriage happened because like she had she had really like and her parents were clearly like very anti New Deal and stuff, but like mm-hmm. she's it's not clear to me exactly why she gets to this this kind of unregional unreasonable fringe of the movement. But uh-huh. by nineteen forty nine she's she's there. Um she's okay. she's attacking Harry Truman for being a commie.
4: That's so that's like, that change yeah. is just... It's so extreme.
3: Yeah, I'm sure it didn't seem that extreme to her. Like, yeah, she ends World War Two. horror... Yeah, like, I... Yeah, I, I can't tell you exactly why it happens, but she's she's not alone in this. There's this growing right-wing movement, and again, this is the period where there's still no concerted conservative movement in the United States. It's starting to form at this time, and one of sort of like the big nexuses that conservatism forms around is what's known to historians as grassroots anti-communism, mm. um, and this is this is not like just opposing the Soviet Union. This is a, a like grassroots anti communists were kind of associated with like they would pass around all these books that would detail like how communists had come to power in other countries and like sort of starting to we were starting to make these different conspiracy theories about what commies were trying to do in the United States. <laughs> like it was this it was this specific fear that communism was was like actively attempting to take over their lives. Um, and there was a lot of things that were wrapped up in this. First off, there was a populist appeal against the elites, um, mm. who even the, the elites in the Republican Party were seen as being like members of this this communist conspiracy. <laughs> Um, and there was this, wow. there was this growing belief that communists centered in the Kremlin had infiltrated agents into the highest levels of American government, um, and so a lot of the stuff that you you see today in like QAnon, right, where like there's this hmm. supposed to be this secret battle in the United States government and all of these bad actors who are like Marxists and Satanists and stuff <laughs> who have gained power in the the shadow government or whatever. That this is where that all really starts. That's where like, it the, yeah, and so Phyllis is on the ground floor of this kind of thing
4: Wow
5: it's it's kind of bizarre because I feel like it is true that all countries have like agents everywhere But when they tie it together like this, it doesn't make sense. Like it's it's I wouldn't be so bold to say like no um, suspicions are ever true and there's no shadow dealings because of course there are. But this idea that there's like a concentrated nucleus of very coordinated like shadow dealings just to go against you and your family specifically is like just that nobody spends the time and money to do that. But yes, there are hints of shadow dealings. And I think that's enough to get these QAnon people going and excited, even though the reality yeah. is, it's just like not that big. It's not what they think.
3: Yeah, there's definitely like communist spies, just like there were, you know, just spies like capitalists this, the, or whatever. Yeah, that spies. we had over whatever, in the we, co- like, <laughs> and some of those spies, like you've got like the Rosenbergs who g- give the Soviet Union information on the atomic bombs. Like that kind of shit is going mm-hmm. on. Um, but Phyllis and her fellow grassroots anti-communists are convinced that like the whole <laughs> government has been infiltrated um by by the commies and that like they're they're working huh. in concert to to carry out a takeover of American society. Um, Robert, so kind of Robert o- do you know what yeah.
4: won't take over the American society? <laughs> that was so bad.
3: Do you know it is a secret communist infiltrator? Uh, trying to replace our capitalist system with um with a I don't uh, what is these it these products love communism I shit it's
4: an ad break <laughs>
3: yeah
0: happy pride from Tomboy X we just dropped our Pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop.
3: All right, we're 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 back um, talking about uh, Phyllis Schlafly and her uh, fringe beliefs about communism. So running on this grassroots anti, so like Phyllis adopts grassroots anti communism and gets like really into this subculture that's forming, um, and she runs for Congress um, and she actually wins mm-hmm. like a really shocking upset victory in the Republican primary. Um, and this, so she defeats like the Republican candidate um to go run against the democrat. And this it might be the first time in modern political history that like a normal conservative ran up against like a fringe far right candidate um that everybody just kind of thought was a was a nutter and then suffered a mm. shocking loss. So like the kind of thing that has happened a bunch in our lifetimes that happened yeah. with Trump. Wow. It it happens with Phyllis Schlafly's campaign. And this is kind of like the first time it happens to the Republican Party where you've got like the folks who are sort of the The moneyed elites who have been running the party since forever looking at this person that they never would have supported beat their candidate and go like, What the heck is happening here? Um So what you're
5: saying is it's very traditional what happened here. Just yes Pure tradition. This is the pure, start of the yeah. tradition.
3: Yeah. <laughs> now, the the good news is that at this point, things were not so far gone in our society that Phyllis Schlafly <laughs> could actually win a general election. Uh-huh. Um, so she gets beaten in the actual election. But the fact that she'd won the primary, earns her a place in the Republican National Convention for the rest of her life. So she's a voting member of the Republican Party for forever. And this starts her mm. her kind of being a part of the Republican institution. Uh, she hadn't won, but she had effectively grafted herself onto the mainstream of the party. And over the next 50 years, she and her ideas would grow like a cancer inside of it. So Phyllis <laughs> Schlafly was one of or the very first people... Inside. Yeah, or a fetus inside of it. Which, you know, again, if only there'd been... If only you could. This is an RU four eighty six joke. I just don't know how to make it, so yeah, we're just going to move on. I was, so I was
4: seeing you struggle, and yeah, it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's so Phyllis
3: Phyllis Schlafly was one of the first people who like starts mm-hmm. writing literature um, pamphlets and stuff to provide intellectual framework for what we today know is just like the right, the like the religious right in the United States, like the mm-hmm. antique... the this this. Um, Uh, like Mm -hmm. this is she's one of the first people who starts like thinking in a concerted way about that and providing reading material for people and again initially it was really focused on anti-communism her first big book was a a, called a reading list for Americans and it was just a bibliographical guide to (laughs) anti-communist books that people could Uh. read Um, and Phyllis kind of promised that if you read the different anti-communist books that she had put together in this you would come to understand quote American the American American failure to grasp that we are already engaged in a total war with the communists. Um, So that's that's the angle she's really pushing at this point. Now that book was published in eighteen or nineteen fifty-eight, and in the early nineteen-sixties, Phyllis gets involved with a group called the American Security Council, which is another Mm -hmm. right-wing think tank that had been initially started to quote help corporations avoid communist influence in their companies, (laughs) and had over time expanded. Yeah, fighting unions basically but it over time expanded to a dedicated group of right-wing military-industrial complex folks obsessing over communist dangers to the United States. So Phyllis gets involved with Mm. these, like, defense industry people who are obsessed with the idea that a communist attack is coming. Um, And one of these folks was a rear admiral named Chester Ward. And he and Phyllis hit it off, and so the two of them became research partners and writing buddies. Now, the ASC had a bunch of different files on communism, and again, this is like a library of, you know, they call them credible sources. Who knows what's actually (laughs) in there? But it's supposed to be kind of outlining how all these different communist movements around the world and different – countries Uh had like organized and gained power. Um, And so they, they spend years reading through this shit and Ward and Schlafly get become convinced of two, central principles. Uh number one, that the Soviet military threat is real and inescapable, so the United States must have superior military strength to avoid war. And number two, that the Soviet Union seeks to bleed the resources and morale of the United States through satellite wars of attrition <laughs> while Russia tests its weapons and bides its time to confront a weakened United States. Um so Phyllis begins calling on the US to have a first strike capability. She's one of like the people who's who she's one of the conservatives who's who starts in like the 1950s, being like, we need to be able to end the world with nuclear weaponry before the Russians can, in order to uh, to stop That's... there from being a war. Um, yeah. So she calls for the United States to maintain superiority of military striking power. And for a few years, like, she and Ward are just like writing these books about how the only thing the U.S. can possibly do at this moment is to continue, is to build up this massive omnicidal. Uh, nuclear arsenal right like that's her first big political issue is that the united states needs to build like a wall of nuclear missiles to protect it from communism
5: wait so let me i know you haven't gotten to the abortion part but i'm already hearing contradictions in her belief system like you she believes in order to feel safe she needs a button she can press at any point to literally abort the entire world but yeah she feels safer if no woman no matter what her case is is allowed to abort a baby, even if she's at risk like that already. I'm like, it sounds like she's maybe dealing with more trauma than
3: beliefs. She Her argument would be that the communists are so evil that the only thing that can keep them from taking over this country and killing millions of people is to be able to kill basically the entire world with an enormous nuclear arsenal. That's the only way what to be safe. What if the babies
5: safe. are communists, though? Is there a clause for that?
3: Like, um, I think she then she supports throwing them in prison or having them executed or whatever. Oh,
5: have the birth and then throw both mother and child in prison after the baby's born safely.
3: Yeah, after the baby's born safely.
5: Then they can die in prison. Okay, gotcha.
3: Her initial big political charge is that like there should be this eternally spiraling cycle of armaments where the United States just throws more and more money into building hmm. an impossible nuclear a stockpile.
5: Did she have money in this? Because you said she was hanging out with DoD. Oh, people? she's like, rich.
3: Yeah, no. So no, no. it's she... like
5: the more that they go make arms, the more money her and her friends would make, right? Like there's more yeah, jobs, I mean, uh, more she, manufacturing. She
3: definitely has friends in like the defense industry. Sure, I'm not sure. Like they're already rich. I don't know how much personal uh, financial interest plays into this for her. Um, but she and her husband do use some of their family money to establish the Cardinal uh, Mincincy foundation mm-hmm. who was like a catholic anti-communist guy uh, uh and th- yeah this foundation acts as a mouthpiece <laughs> for anti-communist pro-nuclear propaganda uh a mouthpiece
4: anti-communist
3: pro-nuclear propaganda yeah
4: <laughs> i just needed you to say that one more time oh
3: yeah God. so among <laughs> other things she uses this foundation to put out wow. propaganda trying to convince Americans that nuclear weapons were quote, a marvelous gift given to our country by a wise God, which <laughs> kind of makes you wonder, well, the Soviets what? have them too. What were they to the Soviets? Like, did God yes. give them to the communists or was that the devil? Like, how does, how does this work in your cosmology? How does she
5: describe communists? Cause I mean, I'm already getting, I mean, I know like the anti-communist movement and it's kind of coded, but like, is is it, does it ever really describe like what, does she mean by that personally? Because it's obviously not just what, you know, it's not just the idea that people should have access to resources. It's, it seems like it's specifically anti, is it anti-Soviet or just anti-fascism or she's just anti-anything no, no, no. but her? like
3: <laughs> anything, that, any, anything that is the government trying to enable people to help each other um, is communism. Like, if it involves the government and it helps people, it's communism, and she wants no part in it.
5: Mm, but nuclear weapons, A-okay.
3: Yeah, the gov- The only thing the government should be doing, in Phyllis Schlafly's mind, is building nukes. Threatening
5: people. Okay, yeah, great.
3: welfare, terrible idea, gonna kill us all. Nukes, great. a gift from God. That's Phyllis Schlafly's... Well, if everyone er-
5: dies, there's less people who need welfare, so... Yeah. Anti-communist pro-nuclear
4: propaganda. Like, I... What?
3: Yeah... She's fucking unhinged. Um, and she and Admiral <laughs> Ward w- wrote a series, but but also so is the whole, the, the birth of the conservative movement is sure, in this sure, like yeah. wild overreaction to communism that leads us into a bunch of horrific things. Um, now, yeah. she and Admiral Ward wrote this series of un- very bad books about the soviet first strike that all americans ought to fear every day that's always her like focus in these r- books is to convince americans that the soviets are going to mm-hmm. get the drop on us that they have better technology and so we have to keep building better and better missiles otherwise we won't be able to kill them first huh. uh, so titles of the book she and ward wrote include strike from space a mega oh, death God. mystery um which is a hell of a title
5: that sounds like a cool sci-fi movie.
3: Yeah, then there was Kissinger on the couch, which was a very anti-Semitic uh, psychoanalysis of Henry Kissinger, who she hated for his interventionalist leanings.
5: Oh, I was going to say, that that's a terrible description that you said, but I was like, that could be a fun porn. I mean, but...
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be like I, I'd watch a Henry Kissinger porn. He's hot. We like all know that. Cast, casting about
2: couch, Kissinger. you know. Yeah. Nobody disagrees <laughs> with that.
3: Um, I disagree. Yeah. So and, and one of the areas in which she is right in this period is she's very like anti. Well, I mean, I, I think her feelings on Vietnam or Korea and Korea were more like we should just nuke them. Um, oh, but she certainly thought that the policy LBJ was like following in Vietnam was a bad idea. And she wasn't wrong about that. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, JFK and LBJ made a whole like everything they did in Vietnam was a horrific mistake.
5: Does, is there anybody on any side that I think Kissinger parts still parts of thinks Vietnam they went well? Like, <laughs> yeah. really? Like...
3: I don't know. I watched Good Morning Vietnam. It seemed like things were going pretty well there for a while. Um, it had, they had Robin Williams. So, like, really, what's the complaint about? <laughs> So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> she, she, uh, other Schlafly Ward books uh, book titles included uh, "Ambush at Vladivostok" and "The Betrayers." So they've got all these like they're some mm. like fucking Robert Ludlum novels, um, but they're all basically making the point about like the Soviet Union is better armed than us, and if we don't spend mm. all of our money on better nukes, like we're fucked. Um and I found The Betrayers. I found a copy of it on Amazon. And so I oh, went God, ahead and yes. I just like read through some reader reviews cuz I wanted to get an idea of like how the people who read this book have interpreted it. So <laughs> in the interest of journalistic balance, I pulled one positive review and one negative review, and I'm going to read you okay. the four-star review right now. Whatever impression this book made at the time, 1968, is it is an astonishing read today. Written by Eagle <laughs> Forum President and Founder Phyllis Schlafly and Admiral Chester Ward, the thesis of this book is that key members of the Johnson administration, in particular Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, had actively sought to weaken and impair the defenses of the United States, motivated a belief, by a belief that the cause of freedom was doomed, that the Soviet Union would surely win the Cold War, and that preparing for the eventual inevitable surrender was the best means for survival. So she's arguing that de- Robert McNamara oh is a gosh. secret like the what of the architects of the Vietnam War is a secret communist agent trying to weaken the United States. Um which I guess is one way of trying to like settle in your head how the United States mm. could do something as dumb as the Vietnam War is like oh it must have just been we must have been trying to fuck ourselves over because it was <laughs> such a bad idea. I do think that's kind of funny. Um the review continues. Regardless of the validity of that position, uh, Uh, the information used to make the case bears examination. Schlafly and Ward walked the reader through a panorama of Johnson administration defense and foreign policy positions, compellingly outlining a defensive disaster. The astute reader will recall without reminder that in 1960, the United States possessed overwhelming military superiority over its communist opponents, and that by 1968, just eight years to two presidential terms later, that had turned into mere parity, and in some cases, inferiority. If nothing else, this caused extreme, needless problems for American diplomacy over the following two decades. And, of course, it had the potential to cause far, far worse. So, basically, what's going on here is the United States makes a bunch of very dumb decisions that are in many cases motivated by extreme paranoia over communism. Um, and this leads extremely paranoid people like Phyllis Schlafly to have assume oh, God. The, the, these couldn't just be that these people made horrible mistakes because they were bad at their jobs. They have to have been part of a communist conspiracy.
5: Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, I, I always think about like Occam's razor. I know it doesn't always apply, but it's sort of like when the easiest like explanation often is the true, like it, it, what you're saying is like they just made some bad decisions that had bad consequences. But even in the wording of this review, he says a mere eight years. Like there's like kind of leading wording, like a mere yeah. eight years, um, well, eight years isn't objectively a mere, like uh, eight years, a lot can happen, especially if you've got a lot of money and people and armies involved, like in a person's life, eight year, like eight years ago, I am like was like 22 years old, you know what I mean? Like I, I think I was straight, when, you know, so it's like a lot changes in eight years. So I feel like the fact that he's already leading in the review makes me feel like the book has a lot of language like that too.
3: Yeah, it's 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 frustrating and it it's like so, okay, here's the bad re- review. Uh, on the other side of things, here's this like, yeah, one star review. Uh, mm. And yeah, uh, quote, Phyllis Schlafly associated with extremist xenophobic John Birch Society, we'll talk about them in a second, puts together a paranoid phylo diatribe here that completely <laughs> ignored the situation in the 1960s. The idea that a ballistic missile defense is somehow still useful is sold like as snake oil by right-wing crackpots and defense contractors. But back then, <laughs> as now, it simply doesn't fly. The recent remarkable advances in missile defense were only made by incorporating GPS transmitters into targets. Engineers, speaking honestly without a financial stake in the outcome, have known this and spoken about this for decades. It's a big welfare program, plain and simple. The idea of a winnable mm. nuclear war is hideously immoral, and the strange loves and their consorts, such as Slafly, should be consigned to the ash heap of history pronto. Which I find really interesting. So this guy's mm. basically being like, the you know, the thing that this, she's, she's this right-wing firebrand, but the thing that she always is arguing for, this like massive... Nuke focused defense policy is just welfare for a specific group of grifters. Yeah, because wow. like none of it's ever worked. Right. That is kind of the deep, uh-huh. the the ugly secret of like all missile defense. Um is that the like none theme. of it would would do anything. Yeah. Yeah, like, It just you have, fear it. Yeah.
5: You keep stockpiling and then like it's I mean it's almost genius if it didn't cost so many lives, but it's like instead of trying to fix problems that you can, because you may fail, like right, like solving poverty and all this. Like I think we can make a lot of progress, but we haven't done it yet, so we don't know for sure. Uh, but you, if you solve a problem that doesn't exist, which is like to just keep stoking fear, you can never fail because the problem doesn't won't go away. Like it's continuous, so it's almost like I feel like they're projecting a lot of their own insecurities onto the government.
3: They're you know. What they're trying to do is take money. That ought to go to helping to build up our society and to help people, mm. uh, and because they hate that idea, but they don't want they don't want to give up the money. They just want to throw mm-hmm. it into something that could kill the entire world instead. That's Phyllis Schlafly's conservatism. Um, so that last <sighs> review mentioned the John Birch Society, and I guess we probably ought yeah. to start talking about them now because they're a really crucial piece of of what's happening here. This kind of coalescing um, sociopathic right wing movement. Uh, and the John Birch Society was founded in 1958. Again, very crucial year there. You're hearing about like a bunch of stuff happened in 58. It's one of the, the most important years for the right wing. Um, and it was founded by one of the guys behind the Welch's Candy Company after he retired <laughs> from the business of making sweet things and decided a conspiracy theorist was a better gig. So Welch, the <laughs> founder of the John Birch Society, believed a lot of very wrong things about communism. But his most famous claim and the one that like made him a controversial figure is that he was obsessed with the idea that Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower was a secret communist. Um, And I've mentioned this a couple of times on the show because it's very silly. Like when you think about like the idea that Dwight fucking Eisenhower was a communist (laughs) infiltrator is it's absurd. Um, But I think when I mentioned it kind of in the past, people assumed I was referring to like like Welch had just sort of like dropped this in a couple of lines in his book or maybe like put out a pamphlet. The reality is that he was so obsessed with this idea that he wrote an entire 287-page book titled The Politician laying out the case that Ike was a, quote, dedicated conscious agent of the communist conspiracy who had been serving communism all of his adult life. The United States, Welch believed, was in 1958 under the operational control of the Communist Party. Um so that's what these people believe. Because like Ike is building highways, right? Like because he thinks that it's a good idea to spend national money on a highway system, he's he's literally an infiltrator from the Kremlin who has become the president. And the United States is completely a communist controlled country because we have highways. Wow. And like <laughs> the G.I. Bill. like it's, it's kind
5: of wild because I do feel like if you strip away the labels of um, left-wing and right-wing, I hear similar conspiracies from the left now of, you know, the White House. And I'm not even just... To, I'm not even going to get into any of that. I'm just pointing out how sometimes we, like, project a little bit. I don't know. I just think there's something really interesting in the way that they, they, they are, like, trying to create this fear. And then, meanwhile... You said Phyllis really knew how to study the politicals, and then became one. She's stu- kind of studying the communists and becoming obsessed. Like perhaps there was a moment when the right wing almost took on these tactics.
3: Who knows? Oh no, they know. absolutely did. That's actually that's actually <laughs> exactly what we're getting to here because the the John mm-hmm. Birch Society. Um, I'll talk about them a bit. That that that's you've predicted mm-hmm. something here. The John Birch Society was named after the guy, uh, after the who what was claimed to be like the first American combat death against communists. That's who John Birch is, um, mm-hmm. and. It kind of, in nineteen in the early, late 1950s, early 60s, it it's, occupies a cultural place that's kind of similar to the alt-right. Mainstream Republicans considered them really toxic because their founder mm. had slandered Eisenhower. Um, but a lot of Republicans, like a shocking amount, secretly agreed with a lot of core Bircher tenants. They just didn't want to be, like, super identified with the John Birch Society. Um, and, the like, because they were sort of, uh, because they were sort of politically toxic to be associated with, they had to be careful about how they organized and solicited funds and handed out propaganda because they didn't want to necessarily be identified doing that. And in order to mm-hmm. figure out like how to get around this, um, they actually studied communist movements that had succeeded mm-hmm. in foreign countries in order to like figure out how they should organize uh, the John Birch Society in order to like get their propaganda out. Um, and so like a lot of communist parties in other countries, they had secret missions Membership roles. They would have these like secret yeah. cadres who would set up in different cities and operate out of front organizations so they could hide donations and people wouldn't be like tied to helping out the John Birch mm-hmm. Society. So they actually do look at how communist movements succeeded in other countries and deliberately go out of their way <laughs> to imitate them. Uh, I'm going to quote from a write up in the New Yorker that kind of explains this process. In the 1960s, Welch became obsessed that even the communist movement was but a tool of the total conspiracy. This master conspiracy, he said, had forerunners in ancient Sparta and sprang fully to life in the 18th century in the uniformly satanic creed and program of the Bavarian Illuminati. Run by those he called (laughs) the insiders, the conspiracy resided chiefly in international families of financiers such as the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, government agencies like the Federal Reserve System and the Internal Revenue Service, and non-governmental organizations like the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission. Since the early 20th century, they had done a good deal of the, their evil work under the guise of humanitarian uplift. One broad avenue down which these conspiratorial forces advanced was known as progressive legislation, Welch declared in 1966. The very same collectivist theories and demagogic pretenses which had destroyed earlier civilizations were now paraded forth in a disguise of new and modern concepts. This is really interesting to me for a lot of things. For one thing, you go through that a lot of that you could graft right onto QAnon, right? QAnon mm-hmm. followers believe that what they're fighting is this satanic conspiracy. They talk about how it goes... Like, one of the things that is is a big part of QAnon is the idea that it goes back centuries in a lot of cases. There's this ancient pedophilic satanic cabal that they're fighting against. You know, they call it the cabal. He called it the insiders. But it's, in a lot of ways, the same conspiracy. Another thing that's really interesting to me here is that Welch is, again doesn't identify as an anti-Semite openly but the you can graft a lot of what he's saying directly under the shit Hitler was saying so Hitler was obsessed Mm. with the idea that any sort of like social welfare or social justice like in the idea that it was starting to be conceived of in the 30s um, in any like moves towards anti-discrimination you know anti-racism anti-colonialism these like any any sort of social movement that was based around empathy was Jewish Mm. infiltration Attempting to bring on Marxism that like that. That was a big aspect of what the Nazis were saying is that like yeah. if, if you were if you were encouraging a society to be more empathetic, you're making it weaker and that's going to lead to it getting wiped out because, you know, the world is just this cold competition of different races. And so you have to fight against social justice, sort of like ideology with extermination. Like, that's what one of the reasons we have to kill the Jews is that they're going to, like, infect our society with this stuff. And Welch is saying the same thing. He's just not saying the Jews, but he's saying that, like, any humanitarian... Uh, policies being pursued in a society are part of a satanic conspiracy to bring it down. Huh. And that's yeah, in the very worst case, uh Welsh believe that military action might be necessary to dislodge the totalitarians. But for the moment Wait, I have Anon- a question. Yeah, absolutely.
5: Does he like their whole thing is that there's secret infiltration, right? Like they believe that they yeah. infiltrated the government and they're secret, right? So yeah. did they at any point consider like, okay, let's say they actually believe this in good faith and it wasn't just a demagogue approach to control people do they ever at any point consider like if they can infiltrate the communists if they can infiltrate america couldn't they also infiltrate the conservatives
3: no they believe that the conservatives have been infiltrated they think the mainstream republican party has been compromised by this too right
5: oh not their people though right like they don't believe that they could be (laughs) co-opted
3: I I, I think they think that they're this, like, small, like, cell (laughs) Mm -hmm. of real, of of true believers. But, like, part of why they organize themselves the way they do is so that they can't uh, be infiltrated, right? Like, that's (laughs) why they, and ironically enough, uh, Welch kind of adopts a Marxist-Leninist model of Mm -hmm. of having a vanguard revolutionary party. So, like... He builds a series of small cells that work in secret to agitate the populace and elect, you know, uh, candidates to office who are in line with their beliefs. Um, it is he. He was quoted as saying, "It isn't numbers we have to worry about, but the courage on the part of our followers to stick their necks out and play rough, the same as the communists do." So there, the 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 John Birch Society hates communism and explicitly patterns its organization off of communist vanguard parties because they see that it works. Um, And Phyllis Schlafly was a member, a secret member of one of these vanguard parties. She was a dedicated member of the John Birch Society from the beginning, um, and she held to its principles her entire life. Now, she denied this publicly, and her biographer argues that she was never a member of the Society. Um, But this Mm -hmm. is uh, factually inaccurate. Uh, Just this year, researchers gained access to letters written by Phyllis Schlafly herself, where she blithely refers to her own membership in the John Birch Society as starting back in 1959. Um, and it's become clear that at a certain point when the John Birch Society got toxic, she stopped openly admitting her membership and became a secret member, denying her affiliations in public because she could do more good by working within the Republican Party and making it change. So she was an agent of the John Birch Society embedded in the Republican Party. And um, now, she started the process of trying to change the Republican Party into the, the party of John Birch in 1960 at the Republican National Convention. Uh, and Nixon to give you an idea of how fucked up things are here, Richard Nixon, that year's candidate, mm-hmm. is going to be the good guy in, in this part of the story. What? Uh, bec- because Nixon and his allies <laughs> no. in 1960 were fighting to add a new plank to the Republican Party platform, one that enshrined anti-segregation and anti discrimination discrimination as fundamental republican values. Now again, Nixon himself mm-hmm. very racist guy. You can listen to hours of him using the n-word and being just like mm-hmm. a horrible racist. But Nixon was also like kind of a, a, a as political operators go, he was more of a politician than he was an ideological republican, right? Like he was a guy who wanted mm-hmm. to do certain things in power but also wasn't like he, 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 his kind of assumption was like, oh, look at how things are trending socially. Americans are fed up with segregation and like with racism. We should at least announce, we should at least make it a, a plank of our party that we, we don't support segregation because that's clearly where the wind is blowing. And Phyllis saw this as pure communism. Like the fact that Richard Nixon was like, yeah, we, pro- we shouldn't support segregation anymore. She thought this was communism because again, any humanitarianism is, is communism. That's like uh-huh. that's what she believes. So she leads a revolt of what she calls moral conservatives, and mm-hmm. remember that line because this is the first yes. time anyone starts talking like this. This is before Falwell and the Moral Majority starts. She has her organization of moral conservatives, um, and they they mm-hmm. run an insurgent fight against Nixon to stop anti discrimination planks from being added to the Republican Party, and they win. Um, And, like, not coincidentally, Nixon then loses the election to JFK. Uh, Now, like all good extremists, Schlafly didn't see the fact that Nixon had gotten his ass kicked by Kennedy to be at all emblematic of, like, conservatism being unpopular and needed to change. She decided that the party just hadn't gone far enough in the right direction yet. Uh, and that was fine for her. She mm-hmm. had a plan to wrench the Republican Party in the American right out of the hands of men like Nixon forever. All she needed was a man to help her with that, because, of course, a woman could <laughs> never be a presidential candidate. In 1964, mm-hmm. Phyllis Schlafly found her man in Senator Barry Goldwater. You ever heard of Barry Goldwater? Yes. Big I Barry have. G. Yeah. A lot of people call him <laughs> the first Trump. Um, he mm-hmm. was a lot smarter than Trump, but also a lot less successful. So I don't know. Uh, The times were different. Like most of America's (laughs) greatest nightmares, Barry Goldwater comes from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, He was born there in 1909. Um, One side of his family was Jewish. Uh, They'd fled from Poland during the revolutions of 1848. The other half of his family were Episcopalian, and Barry stayed Episcopalian all of his life. He joined the military as a pilot in World War II, and he spent most of that conflict delivering supplies. Goldwater got into politics once he left the military, and like Phyllis Schlafly, he was a rabid anti New Deal Crusader. He was initially elected though on an anti corruption platform, sweeping the Phoenix City Council meetings of nineteen forty nine as part of a nonpartisan coalition dedicated mm. to cleaning up the city. And you see this a lot with these guys is like they come into power planning to fight like 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 promising to fight corruption. Like, I don't know, that, that's a story we hear <laughs> but today well. Once they have well. the
5: power, they're the one in power. It's like the whole idea is paradoxical to begin with.
3: The reality of the situation is that you can't come into <laughs> power and fight corruption because power yeah. corrupts, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. He used this as the baseline to, build, to rebuild Arizona's weak and ineffective Republican Party. Re- Arizona used to be a solid Democratic state. Uh, in 1952, he won election to the Senate. Now, the young senator from Arizona quickly gained prominence for his willingness to attack the head of his own party. Dwight D. Eisenhower you're seeing some hmm. some some similarities mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. obviously Goldwater was not an open member of the John Birch Society he didn't call Eisenhower a communist, but he criticized Eisenhower's budget proposals, which he saw as unreasonably wasteful. Uh, financial criticisms of Eisenhower soon gave way to Barry's real issue, which was that Eisenhower supported forcibly integrating schools. So Eisenhower said, "Yeah, we should send in the military to make these southern states integrate their schools if they won't do it themselves." And that was um, Barry Goldwater's big issue. Is in 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 the way he and like, his defenders, so conservatives today, you know, will defend both he and Phyllis Schlafly, who was also anti-integration. Like, her biographer, Critchlow, will defend them both as saying that, like, they didn't oppose integration. They just opposed the federal government and federal troops being used <laughs> to integrate schools. Now, they also... They oppose
5: enforcement of it. Yeah. Because kind of whenever people argue for, like, f- state school rights, uh, for charter schools and things, yeah. they're basically saying they don't want to have to... F- force integration they're not against it but given the choice they're not going to do it it's like yeah mm.
3: and it's, it is one of those things where it's like oh well we're just against forcing people to do it and it's like okay but we still want schools to be integrated and then you ask them well, okay well how do you integrate schools and they never actually have an answer because they don't want schools to be integrated uh-huh. because they're just racists but they know you can't run on that anymore
5: that sounds like a lot like another argument uh, about choice i can't quite think of it but it just yes. is making me think of something this idea that you just want a choice not that you want to do that, hey, anyway, I can't think of it. It's off the top of my head, but you know, just at the tip of my tongue. <laughs>
3: it's freedom. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so Goldwater and Schlafly were both virulent anti-integration crusaders. Um, and it, the reality is that this isn't because uh, they were uh, angry at federal overreach. They just knew that their ideal cons- constituency was white men and white women. Uh, and again, this was actually something that Phyllis Schlafly was pretty consistent about admitting. You know, her biographer uh, <laughs> likes to hide this. A lot of um, folks who will support her or folks who will like support Goldwater will, will try to defend them on this. But Schlafly was very consistent about the fact that she only gave a shit about representing white people and white people's political interests. In 2012, after Mitt Romney's defeat, the Republican Party conducted an autopsy to determine why they had lost. Uh, that autopsy advised them to seek to engage 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 with black and Hispanic voters more effectively, and Schlafly was one of a few prominent Republicans at the time to reject this openly, saying, The people the Republicans should reach out to are the white folks, the white voters who didn't vote in the last Mm. election, and there are millions of them. The propagandists are leading us down the wrong path. There is not any evidence at all that these Hispanics coming in from Mexico will vote Republican. Jesus. Yeah. So this was exactly the same way she felt in the early 1960s, because once she became a conservative, she never ever changed again. Um, and she and Barry Goldwater again wanted to get wanted to get the white people's vote, um, and they were specifically kind of organizing an insurgent campaign against a more you know mainstream appealing Republican presidential candidate, uh, Nelson Rockefeller. And Rockefeller started out as like. He seemed like the guy Mm -hmm. who was initially about to win the 1964 nomination for the Republican candidacy. And back in 1960, he'd actually been the guy who had proposed the anti-segregation plank in the Republican Party platform that Schlafly had organized against. Um, Meanwhile, Senator Goldwater had voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, So this guy in 64, Rockefeller, is running, and he's like, Republicans should be less racist. And Barry Goldwater (laughs) is the, no, 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 we've got to go whole hog into racism. That's my entire thing because I'm literally a fascist. I should note here that like there was never any chance of either of them winning the election, right? Uh nineteen sixty four is right after JFK was gunned down by a, a young Bernard Sanders, and the <laughs> Vietnam War was like not yet at its fever pitch. So LBJ <laughs> who did like one of the most masterful pieces of American political maneuvering is kind of like how LBJ handled the immediate wake of JFK's death. He's extremely popular at this point. Um, and he's just, the war on poverty has gotten started. The Voting Rights Act has been passed. There's like all this progressive stuff that's being slammed through Congress. You've got this incredibly popular and effective Democratic president um, who has taken over from this tragically murdered young Democrat. There's no way the Republicans are gonna win in 1964. So it's something as of a lost cause from the beginning. But it becomes kind of this fight over what the future of the Republican Party is going to be. So on one hand, you have Nelson Rockefeller, who's like he's like Michael Bloomberg. Actually, he's a very very wealthy guy who's popular with the elite of the party, but normal yeah. Republicans hate him as much as like normal Democrats he's very hate out Michael of touch Bloomberg. With
4: reality.
5: Yeah, I was gonna say he's sort of yeah. In history books, he's sort of I mean he he reeks of, of someone who's just an, another rich guy who bought his way into good graces. Yes. But, I remember reading about him as a philanthropist and you're like, that's not the first thing. He didn't get his money by being a philanthropist. Yeah. He got money and (laughs) then he decided to pay his way into being remembered as a philanthropist.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so like the right, the fact that the right wing hates him, they all wind up hating him for the wrong reasons because they weave him into these conspiracy Uh theories. But like, he was he's, he sucks. Uh, and yeah, the John Birch Society considered him a communist agent, and he still winds up in right-wing conspiracy webs to this day. You'll find him in a shitload of QAnon stuff. They can't stop talking about the guy. <laughs> so Phyllis Schlafly is among, was probably the most influential of a cadre of right-wing organizers who in 1964 throws their support behind Barry Goldwater during this period that's going to determine what the Republican Party becomes in the future. The 1964 elections are where the Republicans voted on like What are we going to do next? What are we going to be next? Are we going to be this more kind of technocratic, corporatist, but open party where we try to, you know, appeal to a wide variety of voters? Or are we going to just go straight for white people? And, like, that's us forever is just getting white people to back us. Um, and fucking over everyone who's not a white person yeah straight
5: for white sounds like a really shitty dating app
3: and phyllis schlafly decides like she wants the republican party to be the party of white people and goddamn it she's going to fight to make that be the case and we will talk about what happens next in part two of this episode but Teresa, you know what it's time for right now what time is it it's time for you to to do some pluggables
5: Plugable. Plug them out. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Plug up yeah. with your bugs. Plug up, <laughs> Plug up your holes with uh, by following me online That's at right. Larissa T on Twitter and Instagram. And I think I'm going to be selling some limited hats that say cancel me, daddy, because enough people told me I should make them. So if you guys like those, you I love it. And I'll, they'll probably be out by the time this is out. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And I'm not Larissa T, but you can find me elsewhere on the internet. Or so the legend goes. No one's ever proved it one way or the other if I'm on the internet. So go seek me out, and if you find me, uh, listen to my teachings, and we will become lovers. Uh, Sophie, how do I end this?
4: You can follow Robert on Twitter at RadioK. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BastardsPod. You can buy something from our public merch store. You can listen to Robert on Worst Year Ever, you should wear a face mask and wash your hands what else did i do it
3: (laughs) yes that's good
4: great the podcast is over
0: And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. Every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosen.
2: And I'm David Gura. Listen to the big take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The
1: Therapy for Black Girls Podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford